For the last couple of weeks, we've got a mini-series of three messages talking about the cost. Now, depending on your thinking here, um, I think it's good news. Uh, Pastor Jasmine has said to me, she said, you know what, I feel I want to continue on this cost series for the next couple of weeks. So it will be extended for a couple of weeks uh, while I'm away, while Pastor Jasmine shares those, um, the next two messages in this series that she feels led to, to share. So we've talked in this series so far about, uh, we looked at two people essentially. The cost of commitment was the first uh, message that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. And we looked at Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He, he came to Jesus at night time because he was afraid of what others might think of him. But he, he confronted Jesus and Jesus said to him, he says, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. Well, that was a bit foreign in thinking for Nicodemus. It shouldn't have been, but it was. And he was confronted on his commitment. How? The cost of following Jesus for him meant that he had to give up his livelihood of being a Pharisee because he would have been ostracized very quickly if he had become a follower of Jesus Christ. We read through uh, the life of, of what we've got, at least in Scripture, of Nicodemus, and we discover that he indeed did make or pay that cost and decided that he was going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. Second week, we, last week, we, we looked at another Pharisee, um, a not so well-known Pharisee, but I'm sure the picture or the, the sense of this story is fairly well-known, and we normally pick up the woman that's there, but this man named Simon who, who paid a lot of lip service. He invited Jesus over for, for dinner, um, indicating that he would be the guest of honour, but all of his actions didn't marry up to what he actually said. And we talked about the cost of our lip service. If, if, if what's coming out of our mouth is not backed up by actions, then are we really being followers of Jesus Christ? Because there is a cost to following Jesus. And I've also said this over the past couple of weeks, the cost of not following Jesus far, far outweighs the cost that it will be to follow Jesus every single time. So today we're going to look at uh, not an individual, <clears throat> but perhaps more a group setting today. Are you guys hot? I'm watching you do lots of fans. We might put some fans on if we don't mind, please. That would be helpful to some. <clears throat> and I want to evaluate today in your thought process, why are you here today? Like, why are you here? It's, it's easy to come to God or, or come to church to do something, although I'm pretty sure that there are other things you could be doing. But why essentially at the core... Are we here? It's, and it's easy to even say we've come to worship God. But again, go back to last week, is lip service, that only lip service and not our actions, are, ba are they backing that up? Are we really here to worship God? Is it because 
we've, we've got some roster duty to do today. We're on the welcome team or we're, we're helping out in the kitchen. So I've got to be there again and, and, and do my roster, fill my, fulfil my obligation. Um, maybe it's just the something that we've always done. Sunday is church day and I grew up with that kind of thinking as a young child. I used to get bored coming to church, but it was something we did on a Sunday. My mum and dad would get us ready and, and we would go off to Sunday school, we would do church, um, we would come home. It was just a typical Sunday routine for us when we were young. Is that why you might be here this morning? Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the, unless we come at our very core, primarily and firstly, to worship Jesus Christ, we will, it's not a maybe, we will end up getting frustrated, angry or bitter and missing out on what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. If we are coming for any other reason other than worship God, those other reasons are going to let us down at some point. It might take a little while, but if you're here just to fill in time, there's going to come a time when I've got better things to do. If you're here today to fulfill a roster position, you know, why doesn't someone else do something? And I might as well not turn up. I'll show them. That's, if that's, that's what happens. If the, the core reason of us coming to church or being involved in, in, in a church service, a worship service, is anything other than worshipping God and glorifying him, it will leave us feeling short at some point. At some point. It always will. So why are we here? Why are you here today? Because we love God. Right answer, good answer. Let's see if it happens. One of the most common metrics that church churches use to measure the health of a church is by evaluating or counting the number of people attending church. And whenever I'm at a conference or, you know, sometimes in conversation with people in, even in society and they find out what, my, what I do, I'm a pastor, oh, so how many people go to your church? What, how big's your church is usually the question that comes. And I'm pretty sure when they say, how big's your church? They're not thinking square meterage. I'm pretty sure they're not thinking of the building size. They're actually wanting to know, and it's fairly clear that that's what they want to know, how many people come to church. And, and our society and even church people measure the health of a church based on the number of people that are coming to church. When the church is lots of people, clearly it's healthy. If there's not so many, something's wrong and it's not so healthy. That metric is what is very common. And it's also the, the indication of where people's heart is sometimes. And while it is true that a healthy church should grow numerically as well as spiritually, primarily spiritually, but then as a result numerically. The reality is that you can gather a large number of people together without it being healthy. 
Big crowds were even part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, if you read through the, the miracles of the first miracle, you'll know the first miracle because that was turning water into wine and all, all you people who like that sort of, yeah, Jesus is on side with, with me drinking, that's okay. And, and so this turning water into wine, from there there was this, obviously a wedding it was, it was a wedding at Cana. So there's this group of people, smaller group, but a, a group of people at the wedding. But as you read through Jesus' life, what you discover is this progression and it's, the wedding is the first part. And, then, and not too far on, what you see is this, this crowd following Jesus. And, and as you read on, what you find is this large crowd following Jesus. And if you read on a bit further, what you find is that there is a, a multitude of people following Jesus. And today we're going to get to a passage where it says there was a great multitude of people. So bit by bit, this crowd is growing. So Jesus is not unaccustomed to talking to crowds. But what Jesus doesn't do is attribute size of crowd with health of people's spiritual life. He doesn't do that, and we'll find that today. He actually cuts that down to the core today as we read the Scripture. And I want to, to look at this passage where Jesus actually tells people this, this large multitude or great multitude, <clears throat> excuse me, if they weren't interested in total commitment, paying the price of following him, you're not going to be one of my disciples. If you're not willing to take the total plunge, forget it. Discipling or being a disciple of me is not part of your life. And, and the passage comes today from Luke chapter 14. And it starts in verse 25, and this is where it says, Now a great or great multitudes, plural, were sent with or went with him. Goodness me, I need a holiday. And as he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That cut the size of the crowd down significantly. The reality is, even in our society, and I'm sure it was the same in Jesus' day, crowds tend to attract crowds, right? You see a crowd gathering, 
uh, you think, what are they doing? And you, we call it rubbernecking, and there's been lots of accidents because the people are going, oh, boom, and creating another crowd activity. And, uh, but you can gather a crowd for almost anything. You put on a, a, a football match, and you will get a, a crowd coming to watch the football match. Uh, a car accident clearly is something that attracts a little bit of a crowd. If there was an accident at the roundabout here today, I'm pretty sure 99.9% .9 of you would all go, whoa, and be ignoring what I said and looking out the window. A crowd attracts a crowd. Uh, a house fire. Yeah, it, that's, that's one of those things. In fact, when we were a much younger family, my daughter was in her teens um, and it was the first indication, I guess, to me that she was wanting... She studied journalism, graduated as a journalist, um, but she was only 14 or 15 or something at the time. The house, two doors down, caught a light. It was the middle of the night. The flames were going everywhere. And I'm getting up because I'm hearing sirens and stuff like that. It was something like 1 o'clock in the morning. And my daughter's missing. And we go, where is she? Where is she? And here she is with a video camera down filming the whole thing. A, cra a fire, house fire attracts people. A concert, put on a live concert and you will get people to come. A crowd tends to follow the thing that is interesting. And if it is interesting enough, they will grow or the crowd will grow. If it's not, it will dissipate. And for Jesus, the crowd just get, keeps getting bigger and bigger. Every time he seems to step out, they're looking for him and following him. But they weren't there, it seems, so much to hear and learn from his teaching as much as they were more interested in seeing miracles and being fed physically. And Jesus understood that. He understood that the, the reason this crowd was, was mingling around was because they wanted to see some amazing stuff. They weren't so interested in coming before, because of, of the teaching or wanting to change anything. And what concerned him was, wasn't the size of the crowd. He, it wasn't that this crowd was growing, wasn't the, wasn't the problem. What was the problem was their level of commitment. So Jesus decides to lay it on the line for them. And if you want to follow me, he says, you've got to hate your family, your mother, father, brother, sister, and even your own life. That's how you build a church. That's how you grow churches. You tell people you've got to hate everybody. Not. If you're following along with notes, the first note or the first filler in the call is for all the first blank line is all for the call is for all and I'm pretty sure that when Jesus said you've got to hate your mother father brother sister aunt cousins nephews babies adults old people young people when he said that 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 some thought to themselves you know what this man's crazy that's quite contrary to anything else that we know is in God's word. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. If Jesus was trying to get a crowd that would follow him, it doesn't seem to be that this is the right kind of language to use. So he, 
what, what would normally have happened if this was, if Jesus was here, well, maybe not Jesus was here, but what happens in our churches, in our society, is what we say, we got a crowd coming in, say, oh, okay, everybody, go home, go in and get, invite a friend, come along, bring them back for the night. We're going to have a night full of fun and fellowship. We're going to have live music. We're going to have all the loaves and fishes that you can eat. We're going to have so much fun and fellowship tonight. Go home and invite your friends back. That's what we do. We, we, the reality is that's how churches tend to operate in our society. We put on a carnival. We put jumping castles in place. We sell fairy floss or give fairy floss away. We have live music. We have clowns. We have people and games to introduce them to our church. You've seen it. I've seen it. And you can gather a crowd and the, but not Jesus. He doesn't do that. He says, if you want to follow me, go and, go and hate your family. Or you need to hate your family. He isn't interested in having just a crowd. He's more interested in the people who are serious about having a relationship with him. So instead of making it fun, he calls them out and, and, and ask them to make a choice. If you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you. Now, we know that when Jesus is talking about it, he's talking about it's all or nothing. It's, it's if you're going to follow me, he actually said it in the last verse we read, if you do not forsake all, he says, you cannot be my disciple. And I'm pretty sure in Jesus' day, on that day, some packed their bags and went home because the cost was going to be significant. And what is really significant is we weren't, we, we're absolutely confident that Jesus isn't just calling out the leadership of this crowd. He's not saying, for those who are doing the Pharisee studies at the moment, I want you to hear this. He doesn't say those who, who want to be leaders in your society, you need to hear this. He doesn't talk to those people specifically. He, he says to them, if you want, if, this is for all, the multitudes, the great multitudes were there. And he says in verse 26, if anyone comes to me, anyone comes to me, and anyone is a very inclusive term. And what he's saying is that this level of commitment, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, then you, Jesus has to be first in our life. So I guess the question comes up then, why, why would Jesus say we have to hate our family? And the reality is, clearly, he does not mean that in a literal sense. He doesn't because that contradicts so many other parts of Scripture where we're called to love those people. He didn't literally mean that we hate in the context that we hate or use the word hate. It's more likely and probable or, or possible perhaps that Jesus begins to use this language. It's hyperbolic in nature, but because in that culture... If you were to become a follower of Jesus and turn your back on the traditions without your family's blessings, they would disown you. They, and there's cultures in our society that do just that. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ 
and you, you disown or your family disowns you. It's, it's being thought of, they would think that you hate us as a family and you're not doing what we're asking you to do. It's more than likely that's the, that's the context that Jesus is using when he says you've got to do that because it means standing for what's truth and righteous even if it goes against the will of your family. And the cost of following the crowd is always much greater than the cost of following Jesus. It always is. And he's very clear that if our decision is to follow Jesus, it needs to, that decision needs to take priority over everything. Even if others distance themselves from us because of our faith, or they write you off as, as a friend, or they, they take you, write you out of their will because you're now not part of their family anymore. Or your boyfriend or your girlfriend breaks up with you because they don't want to have this fanatical person to be connected to themselves. And you know what the saddest thing is? Is that there are some today listening to this thinking, well, if that's the case, I don't want to follow Jesus. They will. I know they will. If it means that I've got to give up all those things that I really enjoy, I'm, I don't want to do that. I'll go to find a church that lets me do that. Or I'll find a, a group of people that I can align myself with. I want to live the way that I want to live my life. And reality is that nothing is worth losing all those things. But the, the reality is if you think like that, you are wrong absolutely wrong in fact the complete opposite is true if we really really understood the significance and the implications of heaven and hell and eternity the few years that we literally spend on this planet even if you make it to a hundred the few years that we live on this planet will pale into insignificance in the, light, in the light of eternity. So even if your entire hundred years that you get to live, or whatever, is just a mess, hard work, problematic, you're on your own, you don't get any real joy out of anything, even if that happens, and it's not likely to, by the way, the time spent after we die on this planet in eternity, whether heaven or hell, is far bigger and far greater. The cost is worth it. If we could just comprehend the pain and, and the idea of suffering eternally for not following Jesus, for choosing the world over choosing Jesus, then I'm... I'm sure that any one of us would absolutely jump at the chance of saying, you know what, I'm not interested in the world. I want to follow Jesus Christ because I know what's going to happen. And you should, we should. We have everything written for us here. Being popular with the crowd often means that we're going to be at odds with Jesus. And Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said that if that if you're going to follow me, it's not going to be easy. 
And we're playing with the safety of our own soul if we're going to play around following the things of this world. He says, what prof- for what profit is it to a man if in, in, he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Even in the, the few years that we live on this planet, we were to gain everything there is to gain. And yet we would lo- we lose our soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's what Jesus was saying. It's not worth the cost. And his invitation is for everyone, anyone who wants to be part of the kingdom, anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. We are all invited, every single one of us. And Jesus actually said, though, that many are called, but few are chosen. And again, we can get caught up in in words and, and what that verse really means and what Jesus meant and what he intended by that is that there are many who have been given. In fact, we all have the invitation to be part of the kingdom of heaven. We all have that. It's, it's available to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But only a few are chosen, and we are chosen if we make the decision to follow Jesus. That's the condition. If we make the choice to follow the Lord Jesus, the promise is that we will be in the kingdom of heaven with him. The cost of following the crowd is much greater than the cost of following Jesus. And again, Jesus says that the road to heaven is narrow and and difficult and not many walk that road. But that's the road that we've got to choose if we want to be in the kingdom of heaven. That's the road that leads to heaven. It's difficult, but not many people. It's not the crowd that's going down that path. It's the few people that are going down that path. The invitation is for everyone, but many will come to the conclusion in their own life that Jesus is speaking. What he is asking us to do is just just too hard and we'll give up and we'll walk away. And the truth is that not many will want to pay the price. The reason it's, it's, it's hard is because we are reluctant to give up the things of this world. We hang too, on too tightly to the things that this world offers, our egotism, our own ideas, our, our own opinions, our thoughts, our feelings, our will. Our desires, we hang on to our things. And we have to give those things up if we want to be completely being led by our master because he is the one that, can, that we follow his will. We are led by his desires. We are following his way. No longer is it me. No longer is it you. And in order to be chosen to enter into the kingdom of heaven, we, we have to really show that we want this life. So let's walk the path that is narrow and difficult and hard to find. We can't hold a portion back with a foot in both camps of the world and following Jesus. We just can't do that. We need to relinquish potentially some of those relationships that are, that are self-seeking and, and opportunities that are about building me up. What Jesus was saying, it's 100% obedience. It's, it's giving up everything in order 
to follow me. 100% obedience, 100% faithfulness. Number two, the one and only. Imagine a young couple. You were all young once. Some of you are young. That's okay. But you're dating and you're looking into each other's eyes. Can you imagine that time or remember that time? I know that's going to be difficult for some, but you've been there. Many of you have been there. And you're working out where you're actually standing in your relationship at the moment. And and one of you says to the other, you know, he said, I'm all in. I'm ready to give you my heart and I want nothing more than to spend the rest of my life with you. Now imagine the other person, because it would be the other person, it wouldn't be you, that says something like this. He says, I love you too. And I'm willing to commit to you wholeheartedly for the rest of my life. Let's take this relationship to the next level. I just have one condition. I still want to be able to see other people. That's essentially what we say to Jesus when we say, I love you, Jesus. I'm committed to you, but I can't be exclusive to you. I still want to do what the world is offering. I still want to follow the ways of this world. It's just too much. I still want to do the things that I'm used to. I still want to go out with my friends on the weekend. I still want to enjoy my old lifestyle, but I will go to church or I will go to youth stuff. I will do church stuff when it's on, but I really can't be exclusive to you. And while those words might not be spoken by us, that's the attitude that seems to come out because we we are reluctant to give up the things of this world. Jesus is not the one and only, but one of many. Being exclusively belonging to Jesus will take courage and it will take strength. And we risk losing friendships and family. We may risk losing promotions and and popularity with with people around us. We might miss out on those wage rises and, and benefits that we have in society. We may be ridiculed because of our stance in being exclusively Jesus and not part of what they're doing. But I will tell you the reward at the end is worth it. The cost of following the crowd far outweighs the cost of following Jesus. So I just want to finish with these couple of questions for you because how can we know if Jesus is our one and only? So how can you and I evaluate that in our own life? What, there's got to be a metric or there's got to be an indication somewhere that helps me know if Jesus is my one and only? Well, the first question is, how is your money prioritised? How do I prioritise my money, my income? The Bible actually tells us wherever our treasure is, that's where our heart is. So what we spend our money on can often reveal the true desire of our heart. We'll invest in whatever we think is going to be important. Our priority will be to do what we want to do or think we should be doing. And those that prioritise getting money or getting things in this world, thinking that that's what's going to bring satisfaction, are going to find that that's, that's a false conclusion. 
It's going to leave us feeling short because you can talk to anybody realistically. might be the odd one somewhere, but realistically, the more we have, the more we want. If that's our pursuit in life, is to have more, we can never seem to be satisfied with more because it's always the elusive bit that we haven't got. We don't own the world yet. Money cannot become a substitute for God, yet that is exactly what tends to happen. What is it that we prioritise spending our money on? Money promises in a worldly sense to do for us in reality what only God can do bring us satisfaction and hope and, and encourage us to pursue him. We can't allow money or the pursuit of making money to be our fulfilment in life. And we can't, or if we do that, we can't say, well, I'm going to pursue God, but I'm also going to pursue this stuff because we can't serve two masters. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, you can't serve two masters because either you'll hate one and love the other or else be loyal to the one and despise the other. No one can serve both God and mammon. Mammon's a, money, a word for money or money. So one of the first tests that we need to do if we really want to know for ourselves if, if Jesus is our one and only, how do I prioritise my money? What is the first portion? What is my part in this how do I prioritize that second question you can ask yourself when I get hurt and you've all been hurt where do I turn when I get hurt where do I turn all of us experience pain and suffering no one really gets to escape that if you live you you are going to experience pain and suffering at some point and in speaking with his followers, Jesus warned them of the difficulties that would come and concluded what he said with this. He said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, problems, struggles. But that be of good cheer, he says, because I have overcome the world. Even though you're going to experience struggles, you can rest in me because I, have, I can give you peace in the midst of the problems. So let me ask you again, where do we turn when we're suffering? Many bury themselves in work. If I just put my head down, tail, tail up, head down, let's go. Some turn the, to the refrigerator. Some will go to a parent or a spouse. And while any of these things may not be necessarily wrong in themselves, they all have the potential. They all have the potential to compete with Jesus for our devotion and affection. And when Jesus is our one and only, he ought to be the one that we immediately turn to and make our priority, or it might, if, we, if it's not him, it's, it may indicate that someone or something else has that unique place that he has or should have. If our response to suffering or hurt is to turn to anyone or anything other than Jesus, it may be that our affection is divided. 
and he's not necessarily a one and only. Third and final question, what really gets you excited? What really gets you excited, really? I can, I've seen and witnessed and heard the excitement that some can generate over a state of origin match. I've seen it happen. Players chasing a ball over a field for 80 minutes or so can often turn a normally peaceful, sanctified person into a frenzied mess. You laugh because it's probably you or you know people like that. But the problem is that those same people are often the least excitable in being part of a baptism service or least excitable when someone gives their heart to the Lord for the very first time. There's much more excitement being about getting home from church on a Sunday to watch some crazy car race around some mountain somewhere than there is to spend fellowship with people. Now, it's not wrong. I'm not criticising people who get excited over those things. I'm not, because it's, it's good to be excited over those things, but... They all have the potential of stealing the rightful place that God has in our life away from us. You love football? Fine. I, I, I appreciate the game. I don't get that excited about it. People might say I'm boring, but that's okay. But let's not prioritise stuff over God. And the question is, what really gets you excited? Because Jesus told his followers a parable about a lost sheep and finishes it off with this statement. He says in John, uh, Luke 15, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just people, persons, who need no repentance. If heaven celebrates over one lost sinner, surely that ought to be a priority for those who follow Jesus Christ. Surely that should be a priority for us who proclaim to be Christ followers and Jesus is our one and only. It should be a celebration service here on earth as much as it is in heaven. If all of heaven stops for those moments. So how excited do we get over the things that all of heaven gets excited about? Now, being able to think through those questions doesn't mean that, you know, oh, tick, 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 okay, I must be, Jesus must be one and only. That's not what I'm saying. Those three questions might not ensure our priorities are going to be always right. And we will all deviate in some way. We will. I, I make crazy mistakes and bad decisions at times. That might surprise you, but I do. <clears throat> Just ask my wife. But I'm hoping those types of questions can cause us to think, is Jesus really my one and only? And when Jesus tells the crowds in Luke 14 that they need to hate their family and themselves if they want to follow him, it's because Jesus doesn't want to share you with another lover. He's a jealous God in that regard. And to do that, to live like that, 
it is going to come at a cost because the majority of people will not agree with you. The cost of following the crowd far outweighs the cost of following Jesus. Putting him first means that other things must, must come second. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Jesus goes on to say, and all these other things will be given to you as well. He talks about the birds of the air, the the flowers in the field, how God provides for all of them. Put Jesus first and live righteously, the NLT version puts it. Live righteously, live right with before God and he will give you everything that you need. And putting Jesus first means that we must be willing to give up anything. Relationships that you know is not healthy is probably one of the big ones. To put Jesus first means being willing to give up a job that is keeping us from faithfully and, and effectively serving God. If, if you're in a job that's, that's based on lies and deception, I would challenge you, get out of the job no matter what, it co- what the pay is. To put Jesus first means that being willing to give up a priority that you have might have put in life that's, that's not included Jesus at the centre of it. And to put Jesus first means that we may, must be willing to trust him even when others criticise you and I for our choices that we make. It's to put Jesus first means being willing to follow Jesus even when it gets really hard. And there's no doubt that following Jesus comes at a cost. But I will say to you, even that, nothing worthwhile is cheap. And while the world will pursue cheap alternatives to what God has put in place, they will never satisfy, they will never meet what God has put in place. Jesus is the only one who can fully satisfy So again, I ask you today, are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus? It's worth it. Because the cost of following the crowd is far higher than the cost of following Jesus. Is following Jesus your priority? If not, what is it that is that is more important to you right now? And if you can can pick that out and say, you know what? I don't think Jesus is, but this is get on your knees before your heavenly father and confess that. What's far more important to you? How is that priority being demonstrated in your life right now? How is Jesus being demonstrated? Don't just follow the crowd, but follow Jesus. And when you do that, you may find yourselves being left out of the crowd, but you'll be on the narrow path. And today is a wonderful opportunity to show that Jesus is is your number one, your number one priority, the way that you live, the way that you learn, the way that you grow, the way that you work, the conversations that you have, the way that you live generally. Don't let the priorities of this world begin to push you and capture you or prevent you from receiving the reward that Jesus wants for you. Make the decision. Put Jesus first. The call is for all, anyone. The 
responsibility of recognising what is, that Jesus is our one and only, what is the most important. 1 Peter 1, I want to finish with this verse. It says, if that's your decision, if you're wanting, if you're claiming to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter doesn't say that, I said that, but this is, this is his direction for us. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts, the ways of the world, as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. When I get back from holidays, I want to... Jasmine's going to actually start a series the week before I get back called something, The Pursuit of Holiness, I think is what we've called it. And when I get back from holiday, this whole idea of holiness will be coming out in six weeks, I think it is. And this verse is going to come up again because where it says, be holy for I am holy is, is a command. It's, it's not a suggestion. It's not a choice that's going to be where we head when I get home. How do we do that? How is it possible for us as human beings, sinful as we are, to be holy as God is holy? Because that's what he says. Well, we're going to deal with that when I get back from holidays, okay? You can do some study for yourselves. Um, I will give you a heads up. If you were here, who was here in 2011 on the 15th of April? No, don't worry about the date. Who was here in 2011? I don't know if it was April. I did a sermon series way back then that I want to, I've revamped a little bit for that. And some of you will remember it when we get there. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness, your love, your care, your desire for us to be part of your family, that no one in your mind, Father, is deserving of going to hell. But if those of us who choose that path make that choice willingly, Father, you also tell us that you won't go against our will. So, Lord, I pray now for our church here, those that are online listening in the future some point in time, Father, I pray that there might be a mighty outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, that our desire will be to serve you, to take a check of ourselves, because, Lord, I know the joy, the peace, the love, the, the excitement that comes when when you are our pursuit, when we seek first the kingdom of God, when we put you first in everything, when you are our one and only. Lord, I know that while we have problems in this world, you do bring peace in the difficulties. And even the conversation I had earlier here, Father, I 
absolutely don't understand how people can survive this world without you. I don't. So, Lord, I pray that you would instill in us a passion for the lost, a passion for those that don't know you yet, and to give us the word in season to be able to share. Because, Father, we're we're all going to find ourselves in that place at some point. It's not about coming to church to tick a box. We come to worship you because you are our one and only. You are the one that we want to serve. You are the one we find joy in serving. And so, Father, I pray for this this congregation, this church, however wide and far it goes, May you go with us as we enter into our mission field this week. As we step foot outside our, our comfort zone of buildings and, and, and worship centres and, and homes and all of those places that are comfortable for us and we step into this world. Father, help us to stand out, to be light and salt in our world, not to, to blend in with the crowd but to make a stand for Jesus Christ in the way that we live. So, Father, I pray for your blessing now. Be with us, guide us, and direct us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.